0: Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, where today's health leaders help to forge the leaders of tomorrow. I'm your host, Mark Bonica, of the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Our website is healthleaderforge.org, where you can find information about subscribing to the podcast, links and information related to the episode, as well as our complete archives. Today's guest is Major General Thomas R. Temple, Jr., the Commanding General of the U.S. Army Regional Health Command Central and the Chief of the U.S. Army Dental Corps. The Regional Health Command Central is one of four geographic commands in the U.S. Army Medical Department. The Regional Health Command Central is the largest geographic command and covers from Louisiana to Minnesota in the east and Southern California to Idaho in the west. It includes 14 subordinate commands, including 12 hospitals and outpatient clinics, as well as the Dental Command Central and the Public Health Command Central. The command provides care for more than 440,000 military beneficiaries, and in 2016 delivered 5.8 million clinic visits, 7,600 live births, and 57,000 admissions. Major General Temple is a third-generation member of the Army Medical Department. He entered active duty in 1991 as an Army dentist, serving with a variety of operational units, including the 1st Special Forces, and commanded the 464th Dental Company, while deployed to Iraq in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom. He later served in a series of leadership roles, including the commander of the U.S. Army Dental Command and the commander of the Western Regional Medical Command before coming to his current role. I really enjoyed talking with Major General Temple about his unusual career. We conclude with a brief discussion about his leadership philosophy, but I think you will get a sense of the kind of leader he is throughout the interview. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Don't forget to leave us feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you may be accessing this recording. Thanks for listening, and here is Major General Temple. Welcome to the Forge General Temple.
1: Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate the opportunity to participate in
0: The Forge. You earned a Bachelor of Science at Gettysburg College. What drew you to Gettysburg, and what did you study?
1: You know, I, I appreciate you asking. It's a great story, actually. The, uh, I, I was an Army brat growing up and graduated from high school in Würzburg, Germany, so I was unable to visit any colleges. So what I kind of relied upon were my two interests at the time were biology and swimming, and so I wrote letters to two people at a bunch of different schools, the biology professor and also the swim coach. The only school that wrote me back a handwritten letter was Gettysburg College, and so that was truly my main criteria for selecting Gettysburg. However, I did I also knew about it because I grew up in Maryland, and the church that the school was affiliated with was also was was Gettysburg. So I had known about it from friends growing up, and it just seemed like a perfect fit.
0: And you said you studied biology.
1: I did. Yeah, I was majored in biology.
0: And did, were, did you pick biology because you knew you wanted to go to dentistry at that point? Or, or was that something that came later?
1: No, I did. I, uh, I knew I was interested in dentistry, um, you know, early in high school. And uh, so, you know, a biology major at the time. It, Gettysburg is a liberal arts school, fantastic school. But you had, I had to, have to get all the prerequisites from dental school. I had to choose one of the sciences and biology interested me the most.
0: And you mentioned you were an Army brat. And you, became, and you got involved with ROTC. Was uh, your interest in ROTC because of, of uh, growing up around the Army?
1: You know, I, I think absolutely. So, you know, I, I, I didn't, we didn't have scholarships at the time when I was in college for, for dental school. So, I, you know, I, to me, signing up for ROTC was something I was interested in, and there was no commitment early on, so I figured I would try it. And if I liked it, continue. You know, I, I just signed up for it as a class. And I uh, didn't apply for the scholarship until after my about the middle of my second year i really really enjoyed it, and the people I was working with and you know i I had some amazing TAC officers, you know one of which I still keep in touch with today and so I applied for the scholarship my uh my- i'm sorry my second year and got a two year r o t c scholarship and uh it's funny when I look back on that time because those 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 officers and NCOs involved in the ROTC program were so dedicated and they really had a big influence. We had a captain, Captain Hartman, who was, was a, uh, a ranger in Vietnam. We had a Sergeant Major, Sergeant Major Pernsley, who was a Special Forces NCO in Vietnam. And then our attack, our, our uh, professor of military science, Lieutenant Colonel Dombrowski, was also a veteran. And they, they just taught me so much. They pushed me hard. But they had a lot of common sense in the way they approach things for uh, for college students, and so I, I applied for ROTC, uh, the scholarship, and got it, and you know the rest is history. But as as I talk later on in my career about some of the things I did, th- those folks are were very influential. And the neat thing is, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dombrowski retired, but is was still teaching. was is just absolutely dedicated to teaching, and was a professor for the distance education at the Army War College. So. When I was a student at the work college, I ran into him in the halls and uh, it was just great to see him. Nice. And I, I reached out recently and he's still teaching to the ROTC students at Gettysburg College and all the schools that are affiliated with the ROTC program. So to me, I, I think initially started off because there was, I was interested, but the, uh, clearly the values that I grew up with, which, you know, we, we didn't call them, we didn't call them the, lo- the leadership like we do now or the loyalty, duty, response, all those. Mm-hmm. We didn't call it the same thing, but clearly those values are what I was attracted to.
0: So you mentioned you were a Army brat, and your father was an Army dentist while you were growing up. That's correct, yep. So was, it, was your interest in dentistry from kind of growing up around that and, and your father's in, influence?
1: It, it definitely was, and uh, I just watched how much he loved his job. But I also watched the incredibly positive interactions he had with his team and how team-oriented the Army Dental Corps was. And so that, along with you know my, my love of working with my hands and, and things like that, I chose dentistry as the uh, career and, and have loved every minute of it.
0: So you went to dental school at the University of Maryland immediately after graduation. You knew you wanted to be a dentist. Did you know you wanted to be a dentist in the Army at that point?
1: You know, I... I... I did, but that part of that was because I had a two-year ROTC scholarship, okay. so I knew after dental school I was going to come in the Army. Okay. But, you know, at that point, there, we didn't have the Health Profession Scholarship, so, you know, it was going to be come in and fulfill my ROTC obligation. That did change after my uh, third year of dental school. They brought back the Health Profession Scholarship, so I did apply for it, but, you know, I, I, I knew I knew I was going to come in for a few years.
0: And so... A question I like to ask clinicians when I talk to them about uh, is, is about clinician their clinician identity. So, being a dentist is, is an important part of a person's identity. When did you kind of look in the mirror and, and say, you know, I, I really am. A, I, I've made it. I am. I really am a dentist. Was it when you, you know, g- walked across the stage, you know, at graduation, or was it sometime after that?
1: You know. Um, <laughs> And I, honestly, I, I, I thought a lot about that question. And, you know, I, I think it was even before that, though. Okay. And so, of course, I won't use the pun about looking in a mirror because that's what we do as a dentist all the time. <laughs> but uh, the, the, first time I seated, the first time I seated a patient, and this is in dental school, and, you know, as, as a dentist, you're, you are awfully close to your patients. And everything you do, you're staring in their eyes and their mouth. And, and it's complete trust. You know, you are truly, their health is truly in your hands. You know, the majority of what we do are surgical procedures. And so, you know, as we, as we work on the patients, there's so much to be learned from looking in their eyes. And so the, you know, the first, the first procedures are very simple when you start dental school, but whether you're just giving anesthesia, making models of somebody's mouth or, or doing a, you know, a filling, you're looking in their eyes and you realize that, you know, they kind of have complete trust in you. And at that point, I realized, wow, there's a lot of responsibility here, but um, what an awesome opportunity.
0: So you graduated and came on active duty in 1991. Something that was rather unusual about that is that your father was the commander of the U.S. Army Dental Command at the time and was a major general when you entered active duty, which is the rank you hold today. What was it like coming into an organization where everybody you'd be working with would have known who your father was? It must have been a lot of pressure.
1: <laughs> so that, that's, that's certainly what it seems like. And looking back, you know, but I, I tell you, I'm, I'm very proud of my father. And he worked really hard, but he maintained balance. He always cared for his people and spent a lot of time with my brother, sister, and, and my mom. So, you know, I'm certainly very proud of what he was able to achieve with the balance he also achieved. And um, so, you know, while looking back on it, it would certainly make sense to think there was a lot of pressure. But to be honest with you, I never felt any pressure. And, you know, I I never had a goal to be a general officer. That's for sure. Um, I just wanted to be the best dentist and officer I could be. You know, so I I did after ROTC and dental school, I did a residency, which I guess we can talk about. But from that point on, I took a very different path than my father. And so, you know, my father and my grandfather were both very involved in, in academics and research and, and I, I went the much different route and, and spent most of my time with operational units early on, in particular special forces units. And so in those units they frankly had no idea who my father was. Okay. And uh and all that really mattered in those units is, is how I supported them and my proficiency and competency and uh you know, so it was it was it was very refreshing. But I'll tell you over the years you know, especially after my dad retired, th- there were so many times when I would meet people that knew my father, and they just talked about how, you know, how much he cared about them and how well he took care of them. And and to this day, every time someone tells me that, I'll either text them a picture of uh, the two of us to my dad, or or if he comes to visit, I'll I'll link him up with old friends. And it's just so great to see how those relationships have maintained over the years, to include some of those that were uh, over 50 years old. And and my father, his first duty assignment, in, uh, well after his residency, was in Germany with Eighth Infantry. And my chief of staff now, Colonel John Lamro, his father-in-law at the time, Captain Wall, was served with my dad in 1963, and they saw each other for the first time, and uh, you know, over this over holidays, and it was as if time stood still. It's the neatest thing, and it's the best validation about this career and uh, and the relationships you build uh, based on trust.
0: And we were chatting before before we started recording about, you know, people you and I have in common. It is a neat thing that the, you know, the Army shares. But you mentioned, so when you came on active duty, you did a you did a residency, an advanced education in general dentistry. What is that?
1: Yeah, these are incredible programs that uh, all three services, the Army, Navy, and Air Force have. And it, it, it's a one-year internship. When you graduate dental school... The majority of states allow you to just open up a dental practice. Some states are now starting to require a one-year internship prior to getting your license. But the Army, I I wish we had enough for every single person coming in the Army, but we have about 50. And what you do is you spend a year spending time in each of the disciplines, have incredibly dedicated faculty, most of them are board certified, that will spend time teaching you their trade. And the, the neat thing about this opportunity is it really? It really is a significant improvement to readiness of us as a healthcare provider to work in an austere environment. So, it is. It's a amazing opportunity to gain further skills. You don't get the skills of a specialist, you know, per se, but you really understand your limitations and you have a much higher proficiency level than had you just gone into practice.
0: So, as you mentioned, after you completed your residency program, you went to the Detachment Officers Qualification Course for Special Forces and joined the first Special Forces Group Airborne as the dental surgeon at Fort Lewis, Washington. Can you tell us a little bit about what that experience was like and and specifically what does a dental surgeon do in the first Special Forces Group?
1: You know, so when when I went to the uh, SF Group, your role there is, is, is two your number one role is you're responsible for readiness of that unit you're responsible for I was responsible to making sure these guys were ready to go and but then you know from uh you know we we measure readiness in dental categories one two three, and four dental category one is perfect health two means you have some some disease, but we don't anticipate it being an causing an emergency within the next twelve months. class three is you have a condition that you know we think in our best professional judgment could potentially cause an emergency in the next 12 months. And then category four is we don't know because you're just missing your exam. So my number one job is to make sure the soldiers are ready to go. The next next part of it was to make sure myself and the medics were, were ready, medically ready. So they, they had the training they required to go and do their mission because they work in very austere environments. And so their level of medical training is higher than the average medic. And so I, I did a lot of dental training of our medics to make sure they were ready to go. And then the third part of my mission was to deploy in support of the Special Forces missions, whether that be, you know, a foreign internal defense where we provide training to local forces or uh, we go out in the communities and underserved areas and provide care in support of their government's objectives and, and our government, obviously. So there was a tremendous opportunity.
0: I, I want to fast forward a little bit to 2003. You were the commander of the 4, 464th Medical Company Dental Service. You were in this role for for three years, including a year in Iraq, as the dental surgeon with the 44th Medcom. Uh, what does the 464th Medical Company do? How big is it? What kind of services does it provide? And what did it do in Iraq?
1: So the 464th Medical Company Dental Services is it's an area support dental company. Our, our unit... At the time, there were two different size units. We called it the MF2K, which was consisted of forty-five soldiers and fifteen dentists. And then there was a MRI company, Medical Reengineering, I think, that had about sixty soldiers and and thirty dentists. The real mission there was to provide emergency, comprehensive care, prosodonic and preventive services in the deployed environment. You know, now the new new companies we have more more robust capabilities. We have a periodontist also. And our, our job at the time was to provide the area support, dental care in the southern half of Iraq. So we, we had twelve FOBs from Balad down to Camp Bukha. We augmented the dental assets that became organic to some of the some of the brigades that were over there. And great great mission. I worked for uh, Brigadier General Granger at the time who was the commander of forty fourth medcom and it was we you know my my role as the mnci surgeon was to support the planning and execution of the dental mission and and to travel and you know help general granger make sure the mission was being accomplished as it needs to be
0: can you give an example of what kind of when you say you you were responsible for planning the dental mission can you can you expand on that a little bit what what does that mean what does a dental mission look like in Um, iraq
1: yeah, when you when you look at the theater, you know you, you had to understand the patch chart and where the units where the units were uh, based out of, where, what FOBs had organic dental needs, and so to ensure that the readiness uh, of the soldiers that were in that area of operations, we wanted to make sure there was dentists close enough that they didn't have to convoy at the You know, at the time, the IEDs were getting this was early on, so the IEDs were getting bad and and you certainly wanted to limit limit movement as much as possible. So while you couldn't have a dentist on every single fob, you wanted to make sure there was dental support close enough to, to minimize the risk of uh, soldiers moving around. So we looked over the theater and had a had an idea of what units you know, had dentists, where there was area support medical companies with dental assets or combat support hospitals with dentists, and then where where there was a high enough troop concentration, if a uh, cash would only have one dentist, then so would an area support medical company. So, if there was a large population of soldiers, you would have to have additional dentists there to uh, take care of the uh, sick call.
0: Now, was this your first time as a commander? I mean, you've been in the army for a while as an officer, but was this your first command?
1: Oh, it was, and, and you know, and that's a that's a unique that's a unique aspect of that's a unique aspect of being a physician or a dentist. By the time you have your training. You know, we, did, we haven't had, a lot of us haven't had the opportunity to be company commander or a platoon leader. So I was a lieutenant colonel, and this was my first opportunity in uh, command.
0: And what was that like, then?
1: It was, I, I loved every minute of it. You know, I think the, the neat thing, since it was my first time in, in command, you know, I, I was able to go to the company commander's course. So obviously a lieutenant colonel going to the company commander's course, I was a bit senior than the other participants. But the, the the neat thing was, you just couldn't let your ego get in the way because you're learning this stuff just like the guys next to you. I was I was able to get the uh, amid pre-command course, the solo course, senior officer legal, and and the Fort Leavenworth pre-command courses. So you know, I certainly had the academic background, but we, I didn't have the experience that others would have if you were a platoon leader or a company commander first. Mm-hmm. The the neat thing about this is, you know, another lesson. Even though it was my first command. I had a great team. And a, a little side story before coming into command, I was at the Human Resources Command, or what used to be called PERSCOM. Mm-hmm. And sitting at the desk I had in the Dental Corps, I got a phone call one day from a Medical Service Corps officer who was having a hard time getting in the pre command course and asked if I could help. And, you know, we had extra slots, so I got him in. And that person was, at the time, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Bitterman, <laughs> who was ended up going to be the commander of the 212th MASH. Okay. Which, and I was, I was the four, 464 was in Launchstuhl and the 212th was in Misau, Germany, just a few miles down the road. And, uh, that relationship turned out to be incredible. We did a lot of training together as a MASH and a dental company, which was kind of unique at the time. But, you know, when, when you, you might as well train like you fight. And when we w- went overseas as a dental company, you know, we were never alone in a base. We always would partner with, with the area support comp- medical company or, you know, cash. And so, being able to train with Dave Bitterman and, and those really turned out to be an incredible opportunity. And it really helped me understand that even though you're in command, you know, you, you have you have the network of peers that you can talk to. And whether it's the company commanders forum or, or just your uh, friends, it really was a help.
0: I have to say, I worked, I worked for Dave Bitterman when he was the DCA at Belvoir. And he, is actually, he has actually been a guest on the Forge previously. So for folks who'd like to know oh, more the- about Dave... Uh, he's. I have a. I have an interview with him as well. So oh, af- after your time with with the four sixty fourth, you kind of made a transition to working in what the army calls TDA units, or units that don't deploy. So what people typically think of as hospitals and clinics. So you were, you were the commander after after your time in the four sixty fourth. You were the commander of the Fort Meade Dental Activity. So you had. When you were with the, with the first special forces, you, you had said you'd had time to work in a dental activity, but now you are the commander of a dental activity. How big was the Fort Meade Dental Activity? How many dentists were working under you? Kind of What was the size of the, of the organization?
1: Yeah, that, that, that's a great question. So Fort Meade uh, Dental Activity, I, I don't have an actual, I can't remember the exact number of dentists, but what made Fort Meade very unique was we had, we had two clinics at Fort Meade, but then you were also responsible for Aberdeen Proving Grounds, where they had a dental clinic in, in, in next to the hospital, Carlisle Barracks, which had a dental clinic, and Fort Dietrich, which had a dental clinic. So while the actual Fort Meade installation was relatively small, it was it was very difficult because you had soldiers spread all over the place, and it was myself and our our first sergeant was a uh, sergeant first class, so it's pretty 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 challenging to, you know, maintain contact with everybody and visit the clinics. And so the, the other challenge was it was uh, Fort Meade is the home of NSA. And that was that provides unique opportunities. But having just come from the War College, two, three of the brigade commanders that were NSA were War College classmates. So that certainly helped with the relationships uh, needed to ensure the readiness of those folks uh, back behind the fence at NSA. I see.
0: What was it like making the transition from a Deployed deployable unit like the 464th to working in in a fixed facility like the Fort Meade dental Act? You
1: know, the uh, there, there's it, there are many constants, and and you know even even being in operational units and uh, as you know especially special forces units, there are certainly different ways that the soldiers interact with each other as a level of familiarity that might be a little different using first names and such that you know what wasn't wasn't the case in in a TDA unit. But the 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 truth is, your number one priority, regardless of what you know you're in, was readiness. And so, if if that was the foundation of which you you know approached your job, it, there was so many similarities. the the other the other constant is is taking care of your folks. And it, you know, so that well the the mission was different, and the amount of time you spent in the field training was certainly different. What was important to me was to make sure we took care of the readiness in the mission, but we also didn't lose sight that we were army officers first. And so we, Army officers and NCOs and soldiers. And so we, we did keep the focus on our wartime skills, which w- hadn't been done at the unit in, in a little while. So it was, it was also a great opportunity. So I, I think there was a lot of common areas between the two
0: you mentioned that one of the challenges of leading the the Fort Meade dental activity was the fact that it had it was kind of scattered around the region but a- after you've completed your command of the dental activity you went on to be the commander of the northern regional dental command what was the scope of that organization
1: yeah so the northern regional uh, dental command that that was that was an that was a fantastic job because that that had Basically, from Washington D.C. up to Fort Drum, New York, I guess Fort Knox, Kentucky. Also, we we had many dental activities now that we had that we had the responsibility of supporting to make sure that they had the uh, training, the manning, and the equipping that they need to accomplish their mission. the The other really unique thing about that job at the northern region was that the at the time General Schoemaker, in a brilliant move, realized that you know as as regional dental commanders. At some point in our, our life cycle, we need to be developed to understand a broader level of the Army Medical Department than the dental field. So they developed readiness divisions, and he put the regional dental commanders as the directors of readiness divisions. Yeah. You know, in that job, he sat at the table with the regional medical commander, who was at the time General Holly Bolin and General Caravallo uh, at the northern region. And we, we sat there as the dental commander but also as a readiness director. So many of the most difficult challenges with the command were, were personnel-related and readiness-related, and so that was, that was our job. We had 21 people in our division, and we would, we would work to solve the readiness and ensure the readiness of the uh, forces we supported. And so the scope, the, the geographic span of control was certainly a lot bigger than Fort Meade, but a lot of similarities to the, your, the aspects needed to uh, support the uh, spread-out units.
0: Yeah so that's I, I wanted to kind of highlight that that fact that you know now you are leading an organization where you can't just jump in the car and drive you know even you know drive across town it's a it's a possibly a you know get on a plane to to put boots on the ground <laughs> and uh, so how did your leadership have to change what did you how did you change the way you approached leading when you couldn't physically necessarily be there to physically oversee the organizations that you are in charge of.
1: You know, it's interesting too because you know when when I think about going from, you know, from every level, whether you're an OIC to a DENTAC commander to a regional commander, the there, there's a couple other things. Is you you understand that the role of mentorship is, is is absolutely essential in in all of those jobs, and it's how do you do it? You know, so. You know, you'd love to have face-to-face encounters with everybody that you're a raider or a senior raider to, but now because of the geographic dispersion, you you just can't do it. But I'll tell you, one of the best lessons I learned was from General Granger. And we were in Iraq, and he actually was one of the first in my career to actually do the counseling, as as is required by regulation, but actually do face-to-face counseling. And he could do that while we were in Iraq. And a lot of times for him it meant, as he was doing his battlefield circulation on a helicopter in Iraq, he would sit down with us and go through our support forms and make sure we were meeting our objectives and supporting the mission. And if he could do it there, there's no reason I couldn't do it in Fort Meade with places I could drive to or in the northern region where a lot of those, you know, did require a plane flight. But, you know, so you ask as as you go to a larger command, you know, there's certainly, certainly some things that were a little different. And there's the obvious you have a larger staff, but then the other part of it is, you know, it, the, you know, emotions get you nowhere when, when fighting for resources and trying to support your team. You know, having good data, good objective data to help you make the, the right decisions, but also be good re, uh, stewards of our resources is really important. You know, and I was really lucky in a recent course I got to go to where I met Theo Epstein, who is the general manager of the Cubs and you know, he's he's also the the book Moneyball was written, and he he highlighted how important using the right data, not just data, but the right data, and also you know putting your values prior, you know, even ahead of data if if you think it's right. You know, so in his case, it's using the right data, but also you know making sure you have the right people on the team. So in, in those jobs, you know, making sure you have the the data is important. the uh, the The role of collaboration is also really important and and how you work with your team you know and, and this in that job it's the first time at the regional command it's the first time i had a sergeant major and uh, just absolutely blessed with very experienced very outstanding sergeant's major and the sergeant majors you know as we walked the terrain they would get the pulse and they would see things differently than i did and so it just highlighted the importance of starting every day and finishing every day talking to your to your senior your battle buddy your senior enlisted advisor on what you saw and then that communication so The the challenge is is how do you, what kind of battle rhythm do you establish to ensure that your commanders have open access 24 hours a day to you if they need coaching and mentoring, but also to ensure that your team, you know, your staff at your region is totally dedicated to supporting those subordinate units. And if, if that's the case, it certainly makes the job easier, but the mission much more effective.
0: So after you after your <laughs> command of the Northern Region you actually became the commander of the US Army Dental Command the job that your father held when you first came on active duty which we talked about earlier and at the same time you also were appointed as the chief of the Army Dental Corps what was it like becoming the commander of the Army Dental Command
1: You know so every every level there's things that just bothered you fundamentally that you may not have had the big picture, and you didn't understand why some things were the way they were. But each job offered, you know, gave opportunities to improve things that you thought needed to be improved. And so, uh, when I left the region and I went to the Army Dental Command, probably when I when I think back to my early career, there, the the first commander of that was at the time Colonel Pat Scully became general, and then the second commander was Colonel Leo Rouse. And those those two officers, when I would come for training. You know, would get the officers together and just really fire them up about the contributions we make to Army Medicine and the Army. And so, if if there was ever a job I aspired to in my career, it certainly wasn't becoming a general officer. It was always to be the commander of the Army Dental Command. And so, getting that job was was truly an incredible honor, especially with the folks that went before and the contributions they were able to make. And so, at the time, there was there was a few things that really, you know, bothered me. And and one of those was. Was our our focus on readiness is obviously essential for the army, but the fact that there was so much disease still present in the army, and and we weren't really going after health, you know, was something that I thought that we could really improve. And so that's that was one of the things that I, I really looked forward to going to the Army Dental Command was to support our regional commanders. And at the time, also, you know, so I, I was the commander of the Dental Command for two years. And at the time, General Horoho was the commander, and had had an had a vision that truly you know to me was one of the most inspiring and that was to enhance the health of our nation by improving the health of our army and when you really think about that that mission absolutely brought into the team everybody in army medicine to support you know the health of the nation so you know we really felt part of the team and we really looked at how, what can we do to help realize that mission and uh, and then we'll talk about some of the initiatives I guess in a little bit but it was some really tremendous uh, opportunities in that role as the Army Dental Command.
0: Just to just to clarify what was what this what is the scope of the commander of the Army Dental Command?
1: So, so at the time the Army Dental Command we had five regions and we had all the dental activities from all the dental clinics from the Pacific to Europe to all over the country it was a self-contained command for the most part a lot of support, that came from our medical treatment facilities because of the size, the small size of our dental activities. But we had the responsibility of developing all the policies and manning the force to uh, to make the mission happen. So it, it covered the entire globe and uh, was definitely an immense responsibility and, and very difficult to try. I mean, I, I, I never could make it to all of our dental clinics across the country, but certainly visited it with all the regional commanders pretty often
0: now one of the one of the programs that I wanted to ask you about was go first class what was this program
1: so when you looked at the way we delivered care there was two things that I thought could be done better and one was was to improve to actually go after improving health and you know we we traditionally the dental class one had been around 20% almost all my career and there had always been a a goal of 65% and so that to me if there's disease present, you know, as, as healthcare providers, there was a medical model. So rather than treat things surgically, let's see what we can prevent. So predict and prevent versus, you know, doing a surgical model was certainly something that was much more in line with our thinking. The other part of it was, what was happening was a lot of soldiers, over half the soldiers that came in for their dental exams, never came back for any further treatment, whether it be a cleaning, cleaning their teeth or having their fillings done. So half the soldiers would would leave and their fillings, they would, wouldn't get them done, so they would just get bigger over time, many of them eventually becoming dental class three and, and needing root canals. So I, I, we, we thought there had to be a better way of, of providing the care. There was a, a pilot being done at Fort Bliss, Texas, I heard about, and they were, they were achieving great success by doing the exams and the cleanings in one visit. And, and then if they had small fillings, that was eventually added to the process. So what, what Go First Class really was, was the improvement in the process at which we provided the care. And by lumping your cleaning, your exam, and your filling into one visit, you know, we were able to save over, you know, if, if you did the math with the number of soldiers we served and, and you, you multiplied it by the time, the number of soldiers by the time it took to go, you know, to and from the clinic for your exam, to and from the clinic for your cleaning, and then if you needed a filling, to and from the clinic. You know, we were able to save over a million hours of training time and return that back to the line for their soldiers. And we I remember the day very well when we briefed General Odierno on this concept, and what the possibilities were, but what, also what was required of the, the line soldiers. So rather than march a company in or a platoon to get their dental exams, you know you, you now have to schedule your cleanings and your exams but the outcomes with improving health could be dramatic as well as the improve you know return of time and if you put a dollar amount to that it's it's a very significant dollar amount also and uh so you know you ask about the difference going between a dentec a region and in the dencom you know the level of uh pressure some of these decisions was was significant you know significantly increased at each level and when general odierno said Absolutely. That's what we need to do. Let's do it. To that point in my career, clearly the most pressure we've ever had. Now the entire Army had to do that, and that was a tremendous undertaking. Luckily, I was able to ask the officer that was piloting the program at Fort Bliss to come to Fort Sam Houston, and this was done even before I took command of the Dental Command. And so he joined us in Fort Sam Houston, and he really led the effort with our strategy and innovation team and became our operations officer to execute this uh, in a very deliberate, deliberately planned manner to go across the Army. Very successful, you know, when you, when you think of John Cotter's bleeding change and the eight steps, the, uh, those, those were those were clearly articulated and, and executed according to his, according to the plan. So I really, I really, his, his name was Colonel Brian Kalish, he's retired now, but you know that the key, the key outcome of that Go First Class program was to take the army from about 20% dental category one to the entire army now being over over six almost 65%, and would, when you look at the raw numbers, that's a huge number of soldiers that are now healthy. And to me, getting someone healthy, you're certainly much. It's you are always ready if you're healthy, but you also it's much easier. Um, should you get called to deploy, you know you're going to have less issues. And the dental dental condition of soldiers has always been a challenge from from early times, and re- readiness, whether it's in Vietnam or Desert Storm, dental readiness was always a challenge. And so I'm really proud to take that next step, what the team was able to do to improve health and readiness, and hopefully, you know, dental readiness will always challenge, um, will be less of a challenge the next time. And, you know, ju- just when you think that the oral health of our country is improving, and depending on what statistics you look at, you know, it is improving a little, but depending on, you know, what what groups are coming in the Army, You know, we still have almost 50 percent of the soldiers that come in the Army today have dental category three conditions. And uh, so it's it's still a a very significant challenge to maintain the Army ready to go. And that's not something you can let slide or it'll quickly degrade. And then obviously when you deploy, you'll have more dental emergencies keeping critical members of the team uh, out of the fight. In a nutshell, that might have been a long answer to what go first class was. Um, but it, it's been a very successful program, one that continues to this day.
0: So also during this period of time, you became the chief of the U.S. Army Dental Corps, a role you uh, continue in today. What is the U.S. Army Dental Corps? Why does the Army have a dental corps? And what do you do as the chief?
1: So the Title Ten of U.S. law requires to have a, a dental advisor to the chief of staff of the Army uh, through the Surgeon General of the Army. So through the, the Title Ten responsibilities, any critical advice that is needed uh, from a dental perspective is is my responsibility, as is the readiness of the force. You know, so some of the some of the uh, real issues we get faced with strategic communications, officer recruitment policies, health profession scholarship policies. Um, a big part of the job is the intra service and interagency coordination, and you know now with the Defense Health Agency, that is a more critical role than ever. And I work very closely with the Air Force, the Navy, the Public Health Service, the VA, and the Coast Guard Corps chiefs to ensure that our, our policies are all in alignment. And we also, you know, while I don't have uh, the Reserve Affairs uh, Office. is not under my um, authority. You know, we work very closely with the reserve component because many of the dental companies these days are uh, in the reserves. So that, that's the, in, in the short version of, of what we do. But, you know, there's also a lot of amazing work that gets done uh, from the, we oversee the graduate dental education, as well as the research that's done through through separate commands, but the, those are all um, under under our guidance. the The other part of it is we execute this mission through the we have a deputy corps chief at the office in Washington D.C., as well as the corps proponent that's here in San Antonio, and then also with our graduate we have a chief of graduate dental education who's the dean of all of our residency programs. Here in San Antonio, so we work very closely with them as well as the Army Proponents Division here in San Antonio to make sure our force modeling keeps the, keeps the strength of our Corps at a sustainable uh, way, uh, manner, as well as the Office at the Human Resources Command, also under a different command, but we work very closely with them to make sure we manage our talent, which has been a very important part of my job is to ensure we have talent you know, not only uh, to support the dental mission, but we are sharing our talent from an enterprise perspective for those that have the potential and the desire to serve a broader role than just in the dental community.
0: I wanted to ask you two quick questions about dentistry because your career kind of takes a bit of a turn at, after your command at the DentCom. So what do most people misunderstand in your experience about the field of dentistry?
1: Misunderstand about the field of dentistry.
0: You know, if you a, go to a cocktail party, yeah, and, no, no. And, yeah, what do people? <laughs> and you have to explain, you know, what do people say that's just wrong, or mis, you know?
1: Sure. <laughs> well, first, I got to put in a plug for the field of dentistry. I mean, it it yeah. was in in U.S. News and World Reports, it's the number one job now. So, uh, you know, I'm certainly, it's it's a great profession. What I think people really misunderstand about the field of dentistry is, is you know, it is, it is a, it is a system, you know, that's very different than the care that's provided in hospitals. We obviously have our oral surgeons work in hospitals and some of our uh, maxillofacial prosthodontists, pathologists, and others that work in hospitals. But for the most part, dentistry is still an outpatient model. We don't work in hospitals. And, you know, so the, the systems of support for dentistry Fortunately, we have a, a, a different record than we use in a medical record, and we are finally moving into the point where we're going to have an electronic dental record, which I'm very excited about. But the records are very different. However, uh, as a dentist, you know what I think some people don't understand is is the level of knowledge you receive in the four years of school, the, the first two years of which you know, are very similar to what medical students go through. So the understanding of the disease process is the knowledge of human conditions pharmacology and frankly the complexity of oral diseases you know I think it, some folks probably don't have an appreciation of and, and and in addition to just frankly the challenge of working in the oral environment you know and and working when when your level of tolerance is hundreds of a millimeter you know for uh, for your fillings to and your crowns to fit up against the two there, there's a lot of very um, tight constraints that they have to work in but um, but you know, people People sometimes ask, how can you do that? And, and I will tell you, when you have big challenges, you also have incredible rewards. And when you have a patient who's been in, in pain for a significant amount of time or uh, didn't have function because of the way their teeth were aligned or, you know, the, the, the cavities there, um, it, it is very rewarding to return someone's function and their smile to enhance their their abilities to do their job or just their self-esteem. You know, so great opportunities uh, in, in the field of dentistry.
0: What do people misunderstand or not understand about military dentistry specifically?
1: You know, um, I, I would say that they, I think many people look at the way healthcare is delivered on the installations and you have a dental activity and a, a, uh, and, a, and a medical activity. And what they, I think they don't understand is how incredibly devoted the uh, dental leaders are to being team players in army medicine and you know how closely they work in support of the uh, of the certain generals initiatives and uh, and how closely they work with the with the hospital commanders M- much of the support that comes to a dental activity whether it's logistics facilities it much all that comes from the from the Hospital, and so the relationships that are developed—that has always been one of the highlights of my career—is the people I've been able to work with to accomplish our mission.
0: So, in 2014, you left command of the Dencom and went to be the commander of the Western Regional Health Command. And I'm just gonna—I'm gonna fast forward that because now and then in 2015, you became the commander of the Regional Health Command Central. So these are both regional commands, though. My understanding is Western has now been kind of collapsed into a. There are fewer regions now, so if you don't mind, what I what I'd like to do is maybe just move on to talk about your current role as the commander of the Regional Health Command Central. Sure. So, what is the Regional Health Command Central? What does it do?
1: You know, it's very very similar to the Western. Started. Uh, I started um, going again. We we did the Army Medical Department transformation, and and so the Western Regional Medical Command is is very similar to the Regional Health Command Central. You know, we were a regional support, and seven of the hospitals that were under Western Region are now under the Central. So it was a, uh, you know, very similar missions, uh, just different geographic locations and and span of control. So the, the mission of a Regional Health Command is to provide sustained health services in support of the total force to enable readiness, and to conserve the fighting strength while caring for our own team. So that, that's really the mission, same mission of Western Region as it is in uh, Central. Great, incredible
0: opportunity. What's the scope of the region?
1: All right, so this this is a short question, but there's probably going to be a pretty answer. long answer. <laughs> um, but I, I'm really proud of this team, so I certainly want to highlight it. You know, to me, uh, the, well, the Central Region is, is really the Army's, largest geographical medical region, which gives us the opportunity to impact more than 448,000 beneficiaries, which includes active duty soldiers, reservists, members of the guard, retirees, and family members. So our command oversees the medical, dental, veterinary treatment facilities, including the non-veterinary public health facilities within the region. And I think you may know that the uh, veterinarians are the DOD executive agents, so there's a lot of missions that they do across the region, not just at Army bases, but at Navy and Air Force. Right. So we cover geographic area about 20 states across the South, Southwest, and the Midwest, ranging from Louisiana to the on the East to California on the West. We have 12 military treatment facilities in the region, the Public Health Command Region Central, and also the Regional Dental Command. So in addition to the 12 hospitals, we have two Regional Public Health and Dental Commands that work with us. The Public Health Region Central is comprised comprised of two public health activities, and within each of those activities are veterinary clinics at each base. You know, and as I said, it's not just Army, but as well as an environmental health and industrial hygiene offices, and then the regional dental command. They uh, they have forty three dental clinics just across our region, and they're also we're also home to the Warrior Resiliency Program, which focuses primarily on the mission of virtual health within the region and between the different MTFs. They also administer the regional suicide reduction initiative, which includes epidemiological tracking and review of the suicides as well as the provider training to ensure that the latest evidence-based assessment and uh, intervention strategies are used. So just, just a few statistics if you want them in, yeah. in 2016. On the outpatient side of care, we had over 5.8 million clinic visits, 7,600 live births, more than 7.9 million lab procedures, More than 6.5 million outpatient prescriptions filled, more than 1.6 million radiology procedures, and over 1.7 immunizations administered. And then for inpatient care, we have 1,360 operational beds and more than 57,000 patients who were admitted. And our dental teams handled more than 2 million dental procedures. And then our veterinary services had more than 87,000 outpatient visited. Visits and inspected 3.9 million dollars worth of food and conducted more than 21,000 food safety visits. So, I you know you certainly see by numbers that we're busy, but it's also a very broad mission, uh, one that I'm really proud of our uh, headquarters uh, supporting.
0: That's a that's a remarkable set of statistics you shared. So, looking at your headquarters, what does that organizational structure look like? Who is your team that helps you kind of? oversee all this this diverse set of responsibilities.
1: Sure. And you know what? I'd love to give I'd love to give you every single person's name because right. right. <laughs> uh, we have such a good team.
0: Yeah.
1: But the uh, you know That's clearly sense. the folks I work most closely with include my deputy commanding general, Brigadier General Jeff Johnson, who's also the commander of Brook Army Medical Center. We're unique in this region as our DCG is also a commander. And so his main focus in addition to his command, which is the primary responsibility is the readiness in our region. Our chief of staff, Colonel John Lamro and my command sergeant major Tabitha Gavia make up our uh, our team and as well as because this mission is uh, so spread out our regional dental commander Colonel Mike Roberts and our public health command uh, commander Colonel Jean Bardo are the ones that I, I work with every day. I've also got a team of assistant chiefs of staff at the headquarters building handling the day-to-day operations. Of a command headquarters and our our SGS our secretary of the general staff Don Keeler and our secretary Denise and I could go on and on and on about the amazing people we have okay. um, you know we have the the typical um, G staff uh, with the one three four six nine and uh, to you know to make up the uh, headquarters and accomplish the mission.
0: Yeah, the, these for folks that don't know that's personnel operations logistics, so on. So, exactly. Uh, Thank I, you. I, I know that having been around it, but a lot of folks that will listen to this are not familiar. So right. how does the regional structure add value to the subordinate organizations? How do you know that your headquarters is, is improving the ability of the organization to function?
1: Yeah, that that's you know, to me that's that is a uh, you know that that's that's a great question. You know, the um that's the key the key to I think answering that question is when you consider the span of control of the MedCom commander, and you know, just just like as the Army Dental Command, the span of control was enormous. The span of control of the of our, our Surgeon General is dual-headed as the MedCom commander, and so our our job is truly to support those uh, subordinate, the two, regional dental and public health command, as well as the uh, medical treatment facilities. And so I think providing the coaching, the mentoring. You know, ensuring that our mission is aligned with with Army Medical, and then you know, coordinating coordinating with MedCom. We we have we have the subject matter experts in all the fields, whether it's personnel, operations, facilities, or information technology, to support our units. Another area where a lot of coaching and mentoring occurs is in the safety, quality management, equal opportunity EEO, IG, and especially at our. Um, Director of Communications and Public Affairs. You know, very essential that, you know, we have the true subject matter experts to support our medical treatment facilities and those underneath us to accomplish their missions.
0: What is your role as the commander? What do you see as your primary function?
1: You know, my, my primary function is to ensure that our, we are successful at our mission. And, you know, I, I truly look at my role as supporting our commanders to ensure they have everything they need to do their job. You know, while at the same time, our Surgeon General's, you know, when, when you look at her mission, the uh, fourth fourth of line of of her lines of effort is taking care of each other. So, you know, while I'm certainly, certainly focused on the accountability and making sure we accomplish our met- metric, I'm also very focused on talent management and making sure we're taking care of each other.
0: Uh, what does a day in the life of the commander of the region look like?
1: All right, so I, you probably don't want to know how many hours I sleep or what time I get up to do PT. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, truth, truthfully, you know, I, I, I do take that very seriously. You know, one of the things that Army Medicine is has very, very ably done is talk about the performance triad where we understand the importance of sleep, activity, and nutrition. And so I will just tell you the day in my life is is focused on those three things too. So while I do my best to get over six hours sleep, I do get up in the morning early and do PT and then start my day with our huddle with our team, with our command sergeant major and and our key staff. And then, and then what's important to me is, is taking time every single day to get away from my desk and walk, walk the halls and, and get to know our team. Of course, that's my own headquarters. I wish I could walk through each of the commands every day, but, but that is also, that is also important to me that we try to visit each of our commands at least twice a year. And so my day is, is clearly spent, you know, executive time management is one of those skills that you have to learn as, as, as you, you, go up through the different jobs and it gets more challenging every day. But if you put your priorities on your calendar, you will, they will happen. And so, you know, time management has been a, a, real, a real challenge, but something I've been really put a lot of emphasis on to ensure that we, uh, we, we give the time to our teammates that need it.
0: What are the most important <coughs> metrics that you monitor?
1: If you, you know, had to pick just a couple. Yeah, sure. The, you know, the, the, the number one, when you, when you think about the metrics that, that we really track, you know the readiness. Readiness is, is clearly one, and uh, access to care is another. I guess when you think about those two metrics, they are they certainly work together very well. So you can't have readiness if you don't have access to care. So those those are two two metrics. And when I say readiness, you know, I mean the readiness of the force that we support. But it's also really important to understand you know our own readiness. And so we have a so if if you are a provider or a, a soldier working in a clinic. You might be a professional filler to support a unit that could be going downrange. We call that PROFIS. And what's very important to me right now is that our folks that are PROFIS are ready to go, not just with their medical skills, but also their soldier skills. And that, that's, a, that's a metric right now that's essential for us to be tracking.
0: What keeps you up at night as the commander? So if you're laying in bed staring at the ceiling, what's, what are the things kind of that worry you the most?
1: yeah no that, that's certainly a great question and while it might change a little bit over time. there's a couple constants and uh number one is really when you when you think about profis and you know having deployed and and you know 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 what life is like the the potential to send someone overseas untrained is uh is certainly something that keeps me up at night so making sure our profis Soldiers not only know their profs, but have attained a level of proficiency as a soldier and a and a whatever their their uh, duty MOS is 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 really important, and it certainly keeps me up at night knowing that you know we got a lot of work to do on that. The other part of that is is the safety of my team, and you know I, I think I'm really really proud of the army with the efforts that we've put forth in preventing suicide and also at preventing sexual assault and. You know, when I take the uniform off in a few years, I know I'm going to look back on that and say, you know, if there was ever an organization that could get after those two really significant challenges, it's the Army. And and I, I so, you know, the safety of my team certainly keeps me up um, as well. Right now, you know, we're undergoing a very unique time with the National Defense Authorization Act and the changes that will be coming in military medicine. And making sure we get that right so the future, um, our future Army is as strong as it is right now, is, is very, very important and certainly wakes me up at night with thoughts on how we need to you know, work on that.
0: What would you say you're most excited about in, ter- in looking into the future for, for either the regional command, Army medicine, or military medicine in general?
1: You know, I, I, I tell you, and being here in San Antonio and getting to sit down with every single officer that comes through the captain's career course and, and seeing the quality of people coming through Bolick and through our NCO courses and, and knowing the quality of civilians I have in this headquarters, I am incredibly excited about the talent we have um, to lead this organization into the future. And you know, so one just one example of that is, you know, when when, when you have a selection process, you're gonna get a a, a higher level of folks. So, you know, a selection to get in I'll just use dental, I'm very familiar with the dental school you know when you have sometimes eighteen applicants for every slot to get into dental school, you're getting an incredibly high caliber individual to even get into dental school and then when you have the scholarship, those that get the scholarship, which is almost all the uh possessions we bring in, another selection process so the quality of quality of people we are bringing into the army I am absolutely confident are going to lead the army, regardless of all the changes that are forthcoming you know this this team is going to lead the army to be as successful. And have the same impact on uh, battlefield casualties as we've had in the past. I'm, I'm very excited about that.
0: I wanted to ask you a few questions about leadership to close up the interview. Could you tell us what your leadership philosophy is?
1: You know, it, and it, it's pretty simple. And I, I know, you know, I, as, as I, it's kind of funny. I was actually talking about this with my Sergeant Major today um, as we were coming back from lunch. And she said, Sir, that sounds just like McChrystal. And uh, his philosophy is his okay. listen, learn, and lead. And, and, you know, I, I love the simplicity sometimes of which the smartest people think. So, you know, I would have probably given you a two-hour answer, but it could have been answered in three words. Um, you know, but the, the reality is, you know, you need to listen. And, and I'm not talking about just the dynamics of active listening when you're one-on-one with somebody and you're not distracted by cell phones or other things. I'm talking about listening to all the cues that you have. So whether it's your, your boss's mission and vision, or those around you that are, are um, offering advice, you know, you really need to listen. And then you need to learn. You can never let your ego get in the way of learning. You know, if you think because of the rank on your test, you know, you're beyond the point where you can learn and listen. You will not be near, anywhere nearly as effective as a leader. And, and I'm surrounded by brilliant people here. And, and I recognize it. and I, I feel incredibly fortunate because the, the people that work in my headquarters and those that we support, they're the ones that are going to have the answers to the tough challenges. Just like Go First Class was developed in the in the Outlying Clinics of Fort Bliss, Texas. You know the the great ideas, and those that are in the trenches are going to be the ones being most creative to solve the uh, challenges. And so you have to listen, and you have to learn from them, and then you have to lead. You know you have in, in the leading, the leading is is essential. And I, I one of my favorite books ever is is by uh, Kim Cameron. And it's on positive leadership. And through positive leadership, you can you can achieve extraordinary results in your organization. And so I I feel very fortunate to have grown up with very positive role models in my family, but also early in my career and had those leading. So, you know, leading as a positive leader, as a servant leader, is very essential to the thing. But at the same time, one of the things that makes our Army the, the best is the professional NCOs that we get to walk side by side with every day. And then realizing that, and you know, every time I get the opportunity to talk to young officers, I said, you know, one of the first stops you make when you go to your new clinic better be to the NCOIC because that is truly our our clinic managers, our NCOICs um, are tremendously experienced leaders, and they will help accomplish your mission if you if you trust and you you uh, work with them. And then the the last part, which we didn't get to really talk much about, is, is mentorship, and you know, I, I was. You know, I've always used the definition of mentorship being it's a long-term relationship built on mutual trust and respect. And those mentorship relationships are always going to be much more successful when the officer being mentored or the mentee is the one that seeks it out. And uh, I've been really lucky to work with some incredible people over the years and, and have had mentors that have been very valuable in making career decisions, whether they be next jobs or career decisions, and, you know, to solve specific problems. And I believe everybody's potential is significantly enhanced if they have active mentors um, in their careers.
0: What advice would you have for early careerists who aspire to lead a healthcare organization, uh, perhaps a large system like like the Central Region someday?
1: To me, early on, every task you're given, give it the best you absolutely can. Seek collaboration with those you work with. You know, and, and keep all your doors open. Have all I think. Focusing on relationships at every single level will make everybody to include you much better. Give them the credit for the work they do. Recognize your people. And and frankly, you know, one of the old adages is they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. You know, at every single level, whether you're a platoon leader or a regional commander, you know, those are really important. Those are really important aspects. You know, so no matter how much you know, really truly caring for your people is is very important. And, you know, when when I look for leaders to select to join my team, you're going to find all kinds of incredible folks. They have all the statistics. They've done all the jobs. But when it comes right down to it, you know, having someone that has the capacity to be nice to people, you know, will certainly help build the kind of team that I want to uh, lead this organization and support our commanders. And so keeping those things in mind, I think, along with having true mentors, I think is essential you know, as you uh, as you look at a career in, in healthcare.
0: Thank you so much for your time today, sir. This has been great.
1: I really appreciate this this time and and, and you know sharing sharing thoughts with with other leaders. And you know, if there's anything I can do to help you in the future, let me know.
0: You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website healthleaderforge.org for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again in about two weeks.